0: My name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here, and uh, it is a delight to be here this morning and to be able to open the Word of God with you. Uh, Well, if you have uh, been here over the last number of weeks, you'll know we have been walking through a series we've called Doubt. Uh, It is a series entitled Doubt because we're actually exploring many of the big doubts, the big, uh, big roadblocks that we have that we come across in terms of faith. And this morning, we are actually taking on one of the bigger ones. In fact, it's probably one of the biggest modern questions that we have about faith, and that is to do with science. How does the Bible and science work together? Doesn't science refute too much of the Bible? Now, I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to assume that, that most of you have probably heard either this objection or something like it. That science has disproved the Bible, that it's disproved even the very nature uh, of faith. It would be ridiculous to believe in a God when we can understand all of the different uh, facets of what even makes up matter. We understand uh, all of the different building blocks of things around us. We understand how chemicals react. We understand how weather systems move across. We understand even how cells in our body function together in order to produce all the things that we see around us. How can a reasonable person actually believe in God? Richard Dawkins is a uh, famous atheist. He's a scientist and a very strong opponent of Christianity and, well, religion in general. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, in which he argues that religion is really a, a stop or is a filler for the gaps. It's a religion of gaps, he calls it. He says, in days gone by, people would see all various kinds of natural phenomenon around them. They'd see thunder and lightning and earthquakes, and they would assume that that is the work of some god or gods who's angry and needs to be capitulated. As science begins to shrink those gaps, and as we seem to understand more and more why these things are occurring, Dawkins would argue that science has disproved the very reason for God. God. That actually we do not need God in our thinking anymore. We have moved beyond that as a society. The theory of evolution has shown us how life began and it didn't need God, right? Miracles don't happen. Those were just instances of people who didn't understand what was going on around them. It was a primitive mind trying to comprehend the complexities of life. And so certainly science has disproved God. Or, or many people will even say science and faith, even if they don't necessarily disprove one another, they certainly don't go together. Right, they'll use the example of, of someone like Galileo. If you know the story of Galileo back in the 16th, 1600s when he lived, he wrote, a, uh, he wrote a paper in which he argued that actually the earth goes around the sun. Up until that point, everyone was pretty much convinced that, no, the sun goes around the earth. And he, he had built new you know, laboratory equipment, new telescopes, all this kind of stuff, and he brought his findings to the church, and the church ended up condemning him as a heretic. And so people look at that kind of an example, and they'll say, well, see, there you go. That's exactly it. The Bible and science don't go together. And in fact, really, science should be the winner in that contest they're opposites. Now, I'm not going to do a history lesson on all what happened to Galileo, but the truth is always more complicated, right? Actually, the first time Galileo brought his research to the church, actually, they, they kind of accepted it. They weren't really that concerned about it. Uh, a number of Jesuits even looked into it and actually said, yeah, I think your findings are accurate. It wasn't until later when... when There were other scientists, people whose jobs depended on this theory, got involved, started leaning on the church. The church had just gone through the Reformation. They were very wary about losing more power, and so they condemned Galileo. But regardless of that, the idea that the Bible and science don't mix has certainly prevailed. That that to believe in the Bible is somehow an unscientific perspective. You can't possibly hold that. And so this morning, we want to understand, well, what is a Christian perspective on science? Does science actually refute the Bible? And so this is a large topic, right? This is, this is massive. We could spend hours and hours. And this is going to be a very different kind of sermon than, than what we normally do. Usually, we open up a text and we're going to walk line by line, verse by verse through it. This morning, we're going to look at, at some of the bigger, broader scopes uh, and framework of what the Bible has to say to us. So if you do have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19 is where we're gonna be this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you'll know this isn't a science textbook, right? This isn't a scientific textbook. Actually, it's a book of poetry and songs. Right? And so we need to read it in that lens that this is a poetic account, and yet actually it has a lot to teach us about how Christians relate to the natural world and to science in general. So we're going to use this as our framework to deal with this subject. So follow along with me in your Bible. Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is written to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me? Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's as far as we're going to read this morning. But as we work through this topic, I I want us to to use this text as a bit of a a guide for us in how to deal with this topic of science and the Bible, right? I'm I'm sure you you can probably notice, even as we read through that, that this text is broken up really into two halves, right? Verses one to six seems to be all about the the natural world, God revealing himself through what is around us. The second half is all about actually the word of God, the, the Bible that we have. How God has revealed himself in our Bibles. And so we're going to spend most of our time looking at the first part, right? That's that's what the topic for this morning is. We're going to deal with science. And so I want us, first of all, to have an understanding. How does the Bible view science, right? What is a biblical understanding of that? And then I want us to deal with some of these seeming conflicts that exist, Right? I think actually there's a lot of misunderstandings about what the Bible is teaching. And then finally, we want to see, well, where do conflicts exist? What does that look like? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through that. So let's start just by first asking, how does the Bible and science work together? How does the natural world and the Bible uh, interact? Well, according to our text, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The very first thing that we learn is that actually all of nature around us is a declaration of God's glory. It points us towards who God is. That's what nature does. In fact, it is intended to reveal its creator, right? The psalmist David here talks about the heavens and the sky, right? All the stars above and the moon and the sky and everything. He says, this is a display of who God is. But really, he's not just talking about the sky. He's talking about everything, All of nature reveals to us. The creation reveals the creator. And in fact, as we study it, we learn more and more. Verse 2, he says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Now just pause there for a moment. See, what David is saying is actually we can learn something by studying the world around us but by actually studying what is going on studying the natural world we can genuinely learn something we can gain understanding and knowledge in essence if i can put it in kind of our language what he's saying is the scientific enterprise is a valid means of gaining understanding and knowledge actually that's exactly right a biblical, biblical perspective on science is that the world can be studied understood and we can learn from us learn from it sorry now that might seem like the most obvious statement in the world, doesn't it? Well, Of course we can learn something. Everyone already assumed that, but, but you've got to hear this in contrast to so many other cultures and even religions that have taught that you can't, right? Take for just instance the Roman culture. The Roman culture saw nature around them as, uh, as the product of the whim of their pantheon of gods. There was all these different gods, and they were, they were fickle. They would decide one thing one day and then change their mind. They were all over the place, and so they saw nature as being this chaotic, unpredictable, simply at the whim of these gods, and it would be changing all the time. What use is it then to study science? See, actually, under that perspective, they never would have. It's a very biblical perspective to say, actually, God created the world in such a way that it is consistent, that it is reliable, that it is observable, that it is repeatable, that we can actually genuinely learn something as we study what God has created. So right at the outset, can we just say, the Bible doesn't have a problem with science. In fact, far from it, actually, it encourages the scientific pursuit of understanding what God has made. In fact, many of the early modern scientists were Christian, right? Men like uh, Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Carl Linnaeus. These were all committed Christians who saw their work as an extension of their faith right in fact it's it's Linnaeus I I find this this man very interesting he came up with the Linnaeus uh, taxonomic system if you ever had to take biology (laughs) in your life you might remember this that all living things can be broken down into this different categories you had kingdom phylum order class genus species all that kind of stuff I think I missed one family right and so this is Linnaeus this is what he came up with, and he worked his life, and this is how he broke everything down, but but one biographer puts it this way, he did so to interpret the orderliness of God's creation for his fellow humans, all for the greater glory of God. Why was he studying science? Because he said, this will honor God. Understanding what he has made and what he has put together. It's just what Psalm 19 is telling us. The heavens declare the glory of God. So right off the bat, we can actually say the Bible doesn't have a problem with science. In fact, if you look at just the whole Psalm together, The first half is all about how how nature reveals God's character, God's glory. And the second half is all about how the Bible reveals God's character and his glory. And we're intended to see them together. We're intended to see them working together hand in hand to reveal to us who God is. That's what we are meant to see. So actually, there's no contradiction between studying the Bible and studying Scripture. Now you might say... Okay, hold on. Because while that's all really good, the Bible not, might not have a problem with science. It sure seems like science has a problem with the Bible, doesn't it? It seems like there's all of these conflicts and contradictions. So, so what exactly do we do with that? All right, well, I, I said we're going to break it down into two kind of sections. The first is just what I've called misunderstandings. Times where we've missed it. The second, we're going to deal with conflicts of worldview. All right, so let's deal with the first one, and I think the easier one. We're going to deal with misunderstandings when it comes to the Bible. And actually, our passage this morning is a great example, isn't it? Look back at verse 6. Verse 6 is talking about the sun. It says, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hidden from its heat. Right. Many people have noted this in the past, that this is a very earth-centric view of the solar system, that the sun is going around, it's making a circuit of the earth. In fact, you can look at other places in the Bible, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter one, it says the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. This idea that, that the sun is going all the way around the earth and it's getting back there quickly to do it again. Right, and so this is what some of Galileo's opponents said, hey, look, your your theory is is contradicting the Bible. So what do we do with this kind of stuff? And here's where I'm going to say, it's actually more of a misunderstanding than an actual conflict. See, first of all, no one today will bat an eye if you say, I saw the sun rise this morning. No one gets mad at you for saying, yeah, the sun rose up in the sky. It's setting down over there. That's just normally how we talk. And none of us are really intending by that, that we think that the earth is the center of the solar system. We're not making some sort of astronomy point by saying that. No, we're just simply talking about what we experience every single day. We see the sun go up, we see the sun go down, and we see it come back over here again the next day. And so really what these Uh, what these passages are talking about is just what we normally observe in day-to-day life. The second part of this misunderstanding is usually when we think uh, that they are trying to make some sort of astronomy point. See, the point in Psalm 19 is not actually about where the planets are aligned. Actually, his point in Psalm 19 is why they are there. It's actually a much bigger question that he is trying to answer. The same thing with Ecclesiastes. He's not talking about the positioning of the sun and the earth. He's talking about its cyclical nature. Every day it seems to repeat again and again and again, something we've all experienced. We we have to make sure we're not forcing the Bible to try and say something it's not actually saying, right? These texts aren't astronomy lessons. It's not a science textbook and we shouldn't try and read it in that way. Let me give you another example. It's the parable of Jesus and the mustard seed. Some of you might know this one. It's from Mark chapter four. This is what it says. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He says, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, people have criticized this this parable all over the place because we now know that the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed on earth, right? It's not. There's all kinds of smaller seeds. In the rainforest, they have dust particle seeds, right? They were far smaller. But again, here, we have to see, is that what Jesus is actually talking about? Is he teaching them about mustard, The answer is no, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. In fact, he's using what we would call exaggeration for effect. Why? Well, because the mustard seed we now know isn't the smallest, though it certainly was in the common Jewish sort of garden. That was the smallest seed they used. But we also know that the mustard seed doesn't grow up into a big tree. It's kind of a bush, right? It's kind of this this roaming kind of bush-like thing. And so no one would say, oh, what Jesus is describing is scientific accuracy. No, he's talking. He's giving this example from the smallest to the greatest. That is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. From from humble beginnings, it shall spread and cover the earth. That's the point Jesus is making. It's not about mustard. And so we need to genuinely understand that. We're not trying to make the Bible say something. It's not actually trying to communicate to us. So, From from a very theological side, we would say the Bible is inerrant, but our understanding isn't, right? We can make mistakes. We can have misunderstandings, and so we need to be clear about what the Bible's teaching and what it's not. We shouldn't try and force it to say something it's not trying to say, right? And so I think actually a lot of so-called conflicts are just misunderstandings. Sometimes we get ourselves all bent out of shape over a Misunderstanding. Okay, so that's the simple stuff. It's the easy stuff. It's not always simple, actually, it's, but it's easier than at least the other. Because the truth is, if you've been listening, maybe you haven't, you've probably been wondering about something else than mustard seeds. You've probably had in mind the theory of evolution. In fact, this is really where most of the conflict comes nowadays. It's over this origin of life. Evolution teaches that all of life came about through random mutations, along with natural selection, other factors to choose only traits and adaptations that are advantageous, allow an animal to survive, pass along their genes, and through this, all of life has emerged. And there was no need for God in any of it. So, so what do we say about this? Because this is really where most of this question comes from. I would wager. So let's first of all be clear. The Bible teaches that God created the world and everything in it. There is anything that flies so much in the face of evolutionary theory, it's that simple sentence, that God has actually created everything. Psalm uh, 19 verse 1 says the sky proclaims his handiwork. It's it's his workmanship that, that, uh, that David is looking at. And it is this world that is a product of the divine creator. Romans chapter 1 writes this. says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, what Romans is saying here is it's saying that actually God's power, his existence, is seen in creation. In the world around us, we see evidence for a creator. And yet, here's the problem. If you were to ask most scientists, is that the case, they would answer quite easily, no, I don't see that at all. And so how is that the case How can the Bible say that nature reveals God? And here's where I'm going to say, the issue at stake is not actually an issue of science, but of worldview. The conflict is a conflict of our worldviews. It's the way that we see the world working. It's the assumptions we bring to the evidence, right? It's, It's the things that we say, we have declared these things possible and these things not possible. So, let me give you a bit of an example, sort of a thought experiment. Imagine you you leave here and you go outside to your car, and you find that your window has been smashed. There's glass everywhere, it's all over the place, and you even notice that the glove compartment is open. Okay? You're you're approaching this scene. What are you going to conclude? Well, you're probably going to think, someone broke into my car. But is that the only possible explanation? Well, actually, probably not. You could probably, if you want to think about it, come up with a whole bunch of different explanations for how that scene could have come about, right? It might have been a child in the park, and they threw a rock, and it smashed the window and even bounced, and it knocked open the glove compartment. Okay, maybe that could have happened. Maybe it was someone walking along, and they actually tripped, they're holding something heavy, it smashes the glass, and they actually reach in to try and figure out whose car this is. So they open up the glove compartment. Right? There's lots of different ideas about what could have happened. But I'm going to guess that, that none of you, as you thought about that, came to the conclusion, you know what? It might have been aliens, right? No, of course not. But that's exactly it. Why, why is that not the case? Well, well, because we've said, well, aliens aren't real. That would be impossible. See, that is a worldview that we have. I'm not saying it's a wrong one. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that is our worldview that we have, that we have brought to the evidence, and we have said this could not happen. And the thing is, that is true when we approach, you know, a broken window by our car. It's also true when it comes to science. We all bring assumptions with us to the evidence. We all have presuppositions, things we have assumed beforehand into this uh, as we are looking at the evidence. And see, here is the thing. I think evolution is often a result of a naturalistic assumption that there could be no God. And so all that flows out of it is from that assumption, right? For for here, it's, it's helpful to think about what science is and what it's not, Right, Science is a system of observation. It's how we kind of look at the world, how we can pick out different things. It's a system of uh, observation of the natural world. The scientific method is this means by which we control, repeat, test one variable, observe what happens under different circumstances. It is observation. It's looking at the evidence. It isn't, however, making an explanation of that Of those pieces of evidence. That's what a scientist does. See, science helps us actually look at these things, but it's the job of the scientist to interpret the data and come to a conclusion, and here is where a worldview comes into play. We often think about scientists being completely unbiased, totally neutral, but the truth is none of us are. We all bring assumptions to the evidence. And so I'm going to say, actually, the biggest conflict the Bible has with science isn't with science. It's with this naturalistic worldview that that, uh, the physical world is all that there is or could be. It's a set of assumptions that often gets brought to the evidence. So let me give you another example. When we observe the world... Right, Scientist is going to walk through all these different things that are here, and it's going to observe cells, it's going to observe animals, it's going to observe plants, all these different life. And one thing that we notice across the board is that everything is very well suited to do the job that is required. Muscle cells contract, skin cells provide protection, nerve cells conduct electrical charge, and on and on it goes. And as soon as any one of those things gets out of whack, we usually have sickness, if not death. In fact, that that observation is just simply uh, seen across the board. It looks as if it has been designed for a purpose. Listen to, again, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist. He says, yet the living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design, as if by a master watchmaker, impress us with the illusion of design and planning. Now again, Dawkins is an atheist, he is a firm believer in evolution, and yet he is not shying away from the fact that when we see something, the evidence says that looks designed. Now he obviously goes on in his book to defend why he thinks natural selection is the means by which it got there, but it's helpful for us to see the difference between the observation of what is and the understanding or the competing theory of how it got to be. Michael Behe, a Christian and well known scientist, puts it this way. He says it's important to keep in mind that it is the profound appearance of design in life that everyone is laboring to explain, not the appearance of natural selection or the appearance of self organization. See, I think that's exactly right. Science has said, I've seen this, I've seen this organization, and everything else is an attempt to explain that. And so the, this is where the worldview of naturalism will come into play. It will define what is possible and impossible and look for solutions within it. And the truth is, sometimes our worldviews even speak louder than the evidence. Lynn Margulis, I'm not sure how to say that name, but she was a well-respected scientist held to the theory of evolution, and yet she was a great critic of many Darwinian theories. She writes, says, we agree that very few potential offspring ever survive to reproduce, and that populations do change through time, and that therefore natural selection is of critical importance to the evolutionary process." She holds to evolution. But this Darwinian claim to explain all of evolution is a popular half-truth whose lack of explicative power is compensated for only by the religious ferocity of its rhetoric. That's quite the mouthful, but I think she's right. Essentially, what she is saying is, actually, the evidence itself hasn't led to these conclusions. It has, begot- it has gotten there by what she calls the religious rhetoric. I think she is identifying exactly what's going on. It is a worldview. It is a belief system that has led to these conclusions. She's saying Darwinianism has become its own religion. And so that's why I'm saying, actually, I think the biggest conflict with science and the Bible isn't about science, it's the worldview behind it. We're looking at the same evidence and coming to very different conclusions. This is exactly what Romans 1 was talking about. In fact, this is exactly what Romans 1 is saying, is that we have seen this evidence, God has made it manifest and clear, and yet we have ignored it. We've chosen not to see it. So then you might ask, well, okay, what is this evidence of design that you are talking about? And I think we can point to a lot of different things, and far more uh, intelligent people than me have, have gone through this, but let me give just a few. First of all, I think it's what we've already noticed, that is the appearance of design that things are actually well-suited for their role, for their task. And I think if you were to come across some kind of machine, you would immediately say, well, who made this, right? It doesn't seem to be the product of random chance. It seems more likely to be the product of design. Another evidence that we might point to would be the fact that the universe actually has a beginning point, right? Most scientists agree that actually the solar system as we know it is expanding. The universe is expanding very slowly, but what that means also is that at some point in the past, it was not so. It was actually down to a single point, And then from there, everything exploded, right? Usually called the Big Bang. But actually, what they're saying is that everything had a beginning. And I'm going to say actually from a naturalistic perspective, that causes a lot of problems. Because science depends on this idea that for every effect that you see, there is a cause behind it. Things don't just spontaneously happen, and yet you get a problem when you get back to the very beginning, that very first effect, what was the cause? I think it's actually, from a naturalistic perspective, you have to come up with the most unnatural solution. And I think actually the Christian worldview offers a far better explanation of that evidence to say that a God, one outside of the realm of the physical actually created, who is by his very definition uncaused, caused the first event that actually brought about a beginning. I think the existence of anything actually serves to say, where did it come from? From a biblical perspective, God is that one. Right? He created all things. We could also look to things like the fine-tuning of the universe. You may have heard this before, but there are all matter of forces throughout our world and throughout our universe, right? Gravity would be one of them, right? I hope we're all familiar with gravity. It keeps us down, right? <laughs> But it actually it works all throughout the universe, and in fact it keeps what the, keeps the Earth rotating around the Sun, and gravitational forces keep things in line. What we might not realize is how very specific that force is. In fact, if that gravitational force were just a little bit more, actually everything would collapse in on itself. If it was a little bit less, everything would float away into nothingness. Actually, the gravitational force is exactly where it needs to be to allow anything to flourish. You could say the same thing with strong or weak nuclear forces, things that actually keep electrons and neutrons all bound together. Right? If those forces were just a little bit less or a little bit more, everything's either collapsing or it's spreading apart, and life as we have it could not happen. The universe itself is fine-tuned to allow life. I think another example we could go to is irreducible complexity. That is actually that there are parts of ourselves, parts of our bodies, even that are Uh, very, very complex, but actually are very simple at the same time. So a good example of this is, uh, well, it's an ATP motor in a flagellum. Okay, if you know what that is, that's the little whip-like thing at the back of a bacteria, allows it to move, right? And so this, this little motor is comprised of just a few little proteins, but all of them are absolutely necessary for it to work. And see, this is why we call it irreducible complexity, because Actually, if you take away any one of those things, it doesn't function. And so that leads to quite a big problem when it comes to the development from an evolutionary stance of step-by-step, slowly building things up. This doesn't work. You can't take away any piece and have it still function. You can't have only two of them working and have a moving motor. In fact, many have noticed that it's actually quite difficult to... uh, Uh, from the theory of random mutations in our genetic structure to have large-scale evolutionary changes. Again, Lynn Margulis, the same uh, researcher I had mentioned before, she is herself a geneticist. She says, no evidence in the vast literature of heredity changes shows unambiguous evidence that random mutation itself, even with geographical isolation of populations, leads to speciation. Again, she speaks in mouthfuls, all right? But essentially what she's saying is, I haven't seen any evidence that would prove that genetic mutations are enough to allow an animal to grow a new leg or a wing, to make any of these large-scale species changes. We haven't seen evidence that actually lets that happen. And see, I think she's exactly right. It's, it's a tenet of evolution that things are going to happen, and yet it doesn't seem that the evidence is behind it. We could talk about things like DNA and just the utter complexity of everything that goes on inside the nucleus of what goes on in terms of protein creation and RNA interactions. Francis Collins, many of you might know this name, he was one of the lead researchers of the Human Genome Project, right? This, this group of scientists that actually mapped out all of human DNA for the very first time. He actually became a Christian during that study not simply because of his work, actually people witnessed to him, but what he found at the end was that actually DNA didn't point away from God, it pointed him towards God. He gave this example of going out onto a beach and you go out onto this beach and you find written in the sand your entire name, right? So if I did it, would be Jonathan Newfelt. welcome here to White Rock Beach, British Columbia. If you came across that, no one would make the assumption that that happened by forces of nature. Actually, no, that, that that seems to point to a writer, to a designer. It seems to point towards something of God. In fact, there's so many other examples that we could talk about. We could talk about the challenge of convergent evolution, about the fossil record, about the Cambrian explosion, this point at which... Suddenly, out of nowhere, all of the species suddenly appear in the fossil record fully formed, and we can talk about all of these, these questions that are still left from a scientific perspective. Now, hear me. I, I've done a Bachelor of Science. I'm actually pretty familiar with all of the counter-arguments to everything that I've just listed. But the truth is, at some point, we have to say that what we are looking at is belief and not just evidence. Actually, that what we're looking at is a belief, it is a commitment, it is an assumption that goes behind what we are looking at. And here's where I think the Bible actually helps us. Because the truth is, we don't just have random points for us to try and put together. Actually, we have a God who speaks. We actually have a God who speaks to us, who actually tells us things about who he is, about why we are here. If you could grant for just a moment that there was an intelligent designer, that there was a God who created these things, that this world actually does bear marks of his involvement, we would expect this God to speak to us. And in fact, the Bible says that's exactly what he's been doing. That actually God has been working in our world from the very beginning so that we might actually come to know him. See, that's why I think the full text of Psalm 19 is so important. To see actually that science and the Bible are working together to reveal to us the designer, the creator, to reveal to us God himself. David writes that the law is perfect, it is sure, it makes wise, it rejoices the heart. God's word teaches us. Verse 12, he writes, who can discern his errors? Actually, that's the purpose. The Bible can help us clarify our worldview. And when things get out of line, the word of God actually can help us clarify what is right. Verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. See, God's word is meant to reveal something about who he is, and in fact, it's meant to reveal how we can come to know him. God wrote the Bible, God spoke to us so that we could actually come to know him, and in fact, if you continue on in the storyline of the Bible, you find actually that God didn't just speak, he actually came to us. That Jesus himself came. God himself, the creator, enters his creation so that we might know him. And Jesus comes and he begins to put on display his power. Right? He heals the sick. He walks on water. He calms the storm. He raises a dead man back to life. But this wasn't just simply so that he could show off all the things that he could do. It's so that we might actually believe his word. And he came actually to die and rise again. He came to deal with the sins that were getting in the way of us knowing him. He came to pay the price for our sins so that we could ultimately come to know him that we might worship him as God. See, this is where Psalm 19 ends for us. The very last verse says this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my, uh, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, David ends this psalm in praise and worship. He's ending it, looking more to know God and worship Him. So here's the question: What is the Christian response to science? It's worship. It's worship, not worshiping the creation, worshiping the Creator. The one who has revealed himself in all of the complexities of the life around us so that we can actually see and behold and delight in all that he has made, in all of the amazing intricacies of what he has made in the chemicals and their interactions and how it serves to help us, how our bodies can function and work together. We ought to look through the microscope and praise God. That's what he has made. That's our creator. Look at his creativity. Look at the efficiency. Look at all the amazing things that he has done. Let us learn and study and know so that we can see our God. As we go and look at the beauty of creation, as the majestic mountains that we get to live by, as we see the uh, valleys with the river flowing through it might we actually see that as God's creation and praise him because of it. As we see the flowers and all of their beauty and all of the color that we see in nature from all the animals and the birds with their beautiful uh, plumage and cover colors, as we look up into the sky and we see the stars and their splendor, let all of that come together so that we might praise and worship our God, so that we might see him and delight in him more and more. See, far from fleeing science, Christians ought to be the most interested in what God has made. Let us study it. Let us actually fall on our knees before our creator and our redeemer. Let us worship the one who has revealed himself in nature, who has revealed himself in his word, and who has redeemed us by his son, Jesus. That is the response to the world around us. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you do speak to us, that you have, uh, that you have given us creation that we might study and know and, and come to understand more of who you are. Lord, I, I pray as we wrestle through these topics, as we try and, and, and wrap our minds around all that goes on, Father, I pray, would you bolster our faith? strengthen our faith in you, that actually at the end of this, we might praise you more and more, that we might worship the greatness of your name, that you have created all things, that you entered into creation, that you sent Jesus so that we might be saved, that we might come to know you. Lord God, I I pray, work in our hearts, work in our lives, that we might worship our creator. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.